Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening. Last week, we had a first look at the Defense Strategic Review, and there's more in it there that I think it's worth focusing on. I'll just say from the outset that uh, there was a lot in it that was fairly straightforward. I don't think anyone can object to things like, uh, but it's definitely not the most revolutionary document that's been produced since the Second World War. If you were in that category, you'd have to look at the 1987 DIB review followed by the white paper that made major changes to Australia's force structure. Really, all that's happened with this one, and as we know, the Navy surface ship is not part of the equation, it's as if the Army have suddenly discovered the existence of long-range missiles. It's a good thing, overdue, but, you know, it's a good thing. But what it's done, since the main target has been the Army, it's actually taken the Army from what was looking like a balanced force and turned it into something else for reasons that are opaque to me. If we were looking for something exciting from it, Someone like me was hoping that we might have had some F-35s, additional F-35s ordered, maybe F-35Bs to put on the amphibious ships, Air 7003, the armed UCAV project that should have been brought back to life, but there was no sign of that. So what we're seeing are cuts to army, and I feel in most other areas, just a sort of reaffirmation of the obvious. It's also the strange mix of saying that it's all about the defence of Australia. Well, in every single white paper that I've read, it's always made clear that whatever other objectives there might be, the defence of Australia is still fundamental to everything that happens. So that seems to be just a restatement of the obvious. Then there's references which have since been repeated by Ministers Miles and Conroy that this is improving Australia's expeditionary capability as if, again, this is something novel. It's not. Australia ordered the two large LHDs back in 2007, which are not needed for the defence of Australia at all. They, They were required for regional missions, including contingencies, something like a coup in Fiji, where a few thousand Australians were held hostage or disaster relief if another tsunami were to occur off the coast of Indonesia, that sort of thing. Other capabilities that the ADF has had for quite a while, such as air-to-air refuelling, are also expeditionary in nature. So again, to claim that by getting some extra watercraft, that well, replacement watercraft at that, that it's adding vastly to Australia's capabilities again, doesn't really stack up to any serious thought or analysis. I'll just mention that with army and combined arms operations, without going through the entire history of warfare, if we were to sort of look at the modern era and mechanised warfare, it was Germany, not surprisingly, in 1940, uh, that fine-tuned the idea of uh, combined arms operations when basically during the invasion of France and the Low Countries, they actually discovered that deploying mass formations of armour unsupported by infantry and artillery was actually not the way to go, that even quite large formations without additional support proved to be quite vulnerable. 
So the Germans very quickly reorganised their forces so that armoured divisions had a smaller number of tanks, but a much greater number of infantry fighting vehicles and uh, tracked and towed artillery systems. So that, And then analysts, of course, were trying to understand why Germany with limited, relatively limited manpower. And that sort of fast forwards to today and uh, contemporary operations such as Desert Storm 1 and Desert Storm 2 are exemplars of what it looks like when you get it right with a sort of balanced force, with a sort of combined arms operations. I'm not going to go through the whole Abrams MBT thing again. I, I, I did that last week. But logically, if the army is to lose a number of infantry, well, a significant number of infantry fighting vehicles and a significant number of self-propelled howitzers, then also there should be a corresponding reduction in the number of main battle tanks that were being acquired, I remind everyone, for the price of $4 billion with zero Australian content. Logically, that ratio needs to be reduced. Certainly, it shouldn't be left at 75. It should be you know, 50 or 40 or, or something like that for it all to make sense. But no, we're not, we're not doing that. Now, on this, again, a recurrent theme, particularly from the, the government about amphibious operations in Australia now being much better equipped. The central project seems to be, in their minds, the replacement of the Vietnam-era LCM-8 landing craft, of which Australia has 15. Now, they've done good service. They're in widespread use around the, the region in the Australian context. They've had engine improvements and things like that to extend their life. We have 15 of them. They can carry a maximum of 60 tonnes, which is deemed insufficient for Army's future needs. So the, the replacements will go up to 70 tonnes. But I'll just interrupt myself here by reminding everyone, because it's a story that's not often told, but it's worth reminding people of, of the hilarious attempt by defence. Well, it would be hilarious if taxpayers hadn't lost so much money. With an early er, earlier project to replace the LCM-8s with six larger Australian-built landed craft, and they, was no, they were known as uh, LCM-2000s, six of them were in fact constructed by the old Australian Defence Industries, and they were introduced into service only to find out that Navy and Defence had got the measurements wrong. They were simply too wide to effectively dock with the back of the Manura and Canimbla, the amphibious support ships that they were meant to work with. Now, how we have a system where such a basic catastrophic misjudgment of engineering specifications can be made and nobody held accountable is beyond me. I mean, surely someone in army would have got a tape measure and checked out the width of the Manura and Kimbla and written a specification about that. But no, anyway, so six of these built completely wasted. They're used for some training opportunities and then, and then donated, I think. Anyway, their replacements, the project that is now, or the acquisition that is now underway, they will be 70-ton ships, vessels, and with slightly longer range. But even that increase to 70 tonnes 
to me. I It means that you potentially could put an Abrams main battle tank on one, but an Abrams weighs in at 67 tonnes, so you've only got three tonnes left maximum. And if I were a sailor, I'd you know, want to leave a margin for error. I'm not sure I want to be going very far with the thing fully loaded. But even if you did do that, there's only a tiny amount of ammunition and, uh, and fuel that you're going to be carrying. So from the point of view of deploying heavy armour, they don't make any sense either. Ironically, things like infantry fighting vehicles at round about 45 tonnes, okay, you're going to very comfortably be able to get one of those on and people and fuel and ammunition. So again, for me, it would make more sense to have more infantry fighting vehicles available than main battle tanks because at least the IFEs you, you can um, you can send somewhere. Also in the pipeline is the LCH project, Landing Craft Heavy, that will be able to to carry one or two tanks. Uh, but that's that's not scheduled to come online until you know, later this decade. I think there's been a little bit of engagement in with industry, but but nothing nothing concrete is happening. But the weird thing about these three ships that they are designed to replace the uh, Balak Papen landing craft heavy ships, which Army successfully operated from the 1960s onwards. But they were retired in the 2000s, with the last of them going out of service in 2012. And no one has bothered looking at replacing them until now. And so, again, for the government and various spin doctors to somehow be tooting their own horns, talking about this as this you know, transformational review. No, it's not. It basically means that Australia in this particular area, is simply going to be getting a capability that existed until it was scrapped and not replaced 10 years ago. Anyway, the other notable thing about the you know, the DSR and a lot of other commentators have picked up on, on this, it doesn't call for any increase in defence spending and the departments in the budget and their response to it has sort of indicated that whatever expenditure is going to be required, that that's been deferred in the future. So that particular can has been kicked down the road. Again, that's a little bit disappointing. I think many of us were expecting to see something a little bit more robust, some sort of statement of reality that, that if Australia really is to increase the size and the combat power of the ADF, then that simply means spending more money. I really don't see the logic of, of tiptoeing around that or, or, or deferring it. Another important part of all of this, and again, it's uh, it's received a lot of publicity, is HIMARS, the, the artillery rocket system. Great. HIMARS is an excellent product. I've, I've touched on that before. It's an extremely useful adjunct to a balanced force. But again, let's put this in a little bit of, of context. The predecessor of, of HIMARS was a tracked vehicle, multiple rocket launch system from memory M270, and that was developed in the early 1980s by NATO, the US-led program, but, but with the involvement of, uh, of a number of NATO countries. And the quick background was that the Soviet Union at that time 
had a massive advantage in rocket artillery. Uh, the Soviets had continued on from the Second World War success of their use of uh, Katyusha rocket batteries, and they'd continued to invest heavily in that. So the realisation was that in this particular domain, the Soviets had a massive, massive superiority in firepower, and it was just something that had to be matched. So the tracked MLRS was developed, good product, a range of, of missiles, robust system, but fairly heavy, around about 25 tonnes. So you could deploy it not on a C-130, but, you know, a larger aircraft and 25 tonnes is 25 tonnes. And by the way, in, in our region, Japan and South Korea recognised the usefulness of MLRS and they supplemented some of their domestic programs with that capability. So there's a widespread acceptance that, uh, that these systems were extremely useful. Australia took zero interest. Then in the 1990s, when the Cold War was over and when threat scenarios had changed, no longer was the West that worried about a massive armoured invasion from the Soviet Union. So they came up with the concept of HIMARS, which is basically taking the rocket pods from an MLRS and putting them on a three-ton 6x6 truck. And that gives you your deployability. As I say, it's been a very successful system. There's been a lot of publicity showing how effective it can be in the Ukraine. And that's, by the way, using its very basic missiles, not the full array of, of what's available, mainly because uh, the, the US and other countries don't want to antagonize Russia by giving Ukraine the potential to strike far inside Russian territory. So again, what we're looking at in Australia is not some revolution. It's not some sort of amazing transformation of the army. It's army catching up with a capability that has existed for more than 30 years in the form of the original MLRS, and certainly more than 20 years in the form of HIMARS. And in our region, I mean, Singapore bought HIMARS back in 2007. Presumably, defence was just completely oblivious to this or didn't care or whatever. Now, I don't know whether the, the Singaporeans demonstrated HIMARS in Australia. I suspect they did, because they possibly still do, because they do so much of their training in, in Queensland. So if the army saw the Singaporeans operate HIMARS, they couldn't have cared less. 2019, the US Marine Corps comes out, they demonstrate HIMARS. Whoa, all of a sudden, it becomes all about HIMARS. And I might say that as good as the system is, there are rival products from a number of countries, most prominently South Korea and from Israel. Why Australia has not taken a look at these, I do not know, because the review talked about uh, HIMARS acquisitions and missile acquisitions being accelerated in greater numbers. That's not going to happen. The US supply system is already fully loaded. Their priority is shoring up Eastern Europe to defer Russian aggression. I'm sure that um, behind the scenes, they wouldn't say it to Australian faces, they would take the view, we have had a couple of decades to get our act together in terms of rocket artillery. We've shown no interest at all. And now we want 
rapid deliveries of more of these things. I don't think it's going to happen. Some sort of handshake deal might have been done, but it just seems unlikely. If we want rapid anything, we should be talking to the South Koreans and the, the Israelis, but that's just really not going to happen. And again, I'll, we're starting to run out of time. So I'll just say a few words about uh, self-propelled howitzers versus as HIMARS. Self-propelled howitzers have massive crew protection, heavy armor. HIMARS does not. If HIMARS was ever on the receiving end of a counter-strike from you know, an airburst munition or something like that, the crew would be dead. It's not designed to survive some sort of counter-strike. A self-propelled howitzer is. A HIMARS, once it's fired its pod of six rockets, that's it. It has to be resupplied. At least an SPH comes with 47, 48 rounds on board, just gives it um, more ability to sustain a rate of fire. In terms of manoeuvring, they're both manoeuvrable, but in slightly different ways. HIMARS being a truck, you'll, you'll whip along a road pretty quickly, but attract self-propelled howitzer, so you're going to be able to go across you know, difficult terrain. So they've, they've each got advantages. My basic point is that the systems are complementary, whereas what the DSR has done, it's pretty much has said it, it's sort of declared, oh, the age of self-propelled howitzers is over. It's not all about rockets. Well, with the greatest respect, no, it's not. The rest of the world is falling over themselves to acquire more of both. Australia is the only nation that I am aware of that has given up a large element of self-propelled howitzer capability in this really strange belief that doesn't seem to be based on analysis that, that rockets will do everything when, when, they, when they won't. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And if people will indulge me for a few extra seconds on a personal matter, and I'll elaborate on this at a future point, I'll just say to, uh, to all of my fellow international travellers, if any of you want to travel and hope that when you reach your destination, your luggage will arrive on the same flight, my suggestion is try an airline other than Jetstar. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.